Good morning. Well, Charlie is, uh, he's not here. Um, you know, he started at his hill uh, when he was 32 or 33. I can't remember exactly what his age was, uh, as the director. When I came on staff there, I was 25. Charlie was the oldest person we had on staff. He was 34. Um, Charlie's been there a long time. And so we thought that now that he's, he's 95, we ought to, <laughs> we ought to give him a, 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 some kind of thank you. So uh, the board and the staff sent Charlie and Patsy on a cruise. They're on an Alaskan cruise right now. So they're up in the Northwest. Uh, Arlene and I and Lauren just got back from the Northwest. We were just celebrating my mother-in-law's birthday. And somebody this morning, Heather Forrest, asked me, uh, how was it? And I said, it was comfortable. Uh, they're going through a, a drought, a really bad drought for them. If only we could have a drought like they do. We were walking on soft grass, and barefoot for the whole time. Uh, it's just, a, a, different, just a, a different kind of idea of what a drought is. But uh, anyway, that's why Charlie's not here. So you can pray for them that they have a restful time. We're going to be in Acts chapters 3 and 4. It'll, at some point, we'll be on the screen. But before that, uh, let's stand together. I want to read from a couple of other passages. Uh, that, then those passages will come. And I'll just read them to you so you don't have to uh, flip through them so fast. Pretty soon, I'm hoping they'll be up on the screen. In Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, read like this. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head of all rule and authority. And also in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, it says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who will call you, be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reality of being yours, of knowing you for all that you are through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that because of this, we can live now with whatever you and your sovereignty lay before us. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom. Now, as we sit and we look at your word, we do so acknowledging our reliance upon you that we can really manufacture nothing of this that's of profit. It has to be what you do. And so we do look to you and ask of you that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please be seated. What's that? We think it's a connection up here. Okay, so you want me to turn it off? Try replugging that. Back on. Okay. You got it? It was, it's gone. Okay, so don't touch anything. <laughs> Got it. 
All right. So, is it there? It's not. So touch something. We actually did try this before, and it was all working great. Okay. Forget it. All right. Oh, you want to try another one? Okay, now this. Hey! All right. Okay, so there's the two passages that we looked at to begin with. We are going to be in Acts chapter 3 and 4. But with these two passages, there's two things I want to point out in preparation for what we're going to be looking at in Acts. First of all, from Colossians 2.9, it says that in Him you have been made complete. In Christ you've been made complete. So the pressure's off. The pressure's off of you and me in trying to be what we never could be. You know, the Satan tells, tells Eve in the day that you take thereof, you will be like God. Knowing good and evil, but they never could because they were never designed for that. But they were, they were designed, as we have been now, to reflect the image of God, to allow the very life of God his way in us. So the pressure is off now. Romans chapter 8 says, What we could not do, weak as we are by the flesh, God has done in Christ. So we find in that second passage in 1 Peter, In all your behavior you shall be holy, for I am holy. So while the pressure is off, the requirement remains. We are to be holy, how holy as holy as God. So we are to live according to His holiness. But the pressure's off. It's no longer required of you in and of yourself. So Peter and John understand this. In our passage in chapter 3, we see that they're living this out. Let's look at the first... 11 verses. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sat down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms, but Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us! And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. They were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico 
of Solomon, full of amazement. Probably the, the most common question that has been asked of me from our students at His Hill throughout the years has been this. Kelly, how do I know what to do next? Which I think is an interesting question because how did they end up at His Hill? Now, how do we end up anywhere? What do I do next? I appreciate the answer to this question that Elizabeth Elliot has given simply when you don't know what to do next to do the next thing. What does that mean? We see Peter and John simply doing the next thing. What do I mean? Well, in verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. This is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The reason they were going to pray is because this was the hour that they prayed every day according to their Jewish custom. They were raised with this. They've done this every day at the, third, at the ninth hour, at 3 o'clock. They've done this every day their whole life. It's simply the next thing to do. They're going about doing the next thing, always available to the Lord. Walking in that relationship that they have with Him. Just doing the next thing. We need to learn to be with Him in the next thing. We're so wrapped up, so concerned about what we should do tomorrow. What that big, you know, we need that big answer to that big situation that's coming next week or next month or next year. And so we keep looking to next week, next month, next year, ignoring the next thing. How in the world will we learn to recognize what the Lord will have us do next year if we don't learn to recognize Him today? You'll think of it like this. I like to ask our students, particularly the girls, someday, Lord willing, if this is what He has for you, you will get married. Now let's envision that day. And they're more than willing to do that. Everything's decorated the way you want it to be decorated. You have the dress you want. Everybody is in place. And let's say at the end of that service, then we go into the reception. And you know, it's just a wonderful time of celebration. And at the end of that reception, your new husband comes to you and says, thank you so much for marrying me. What a blessing this has been. We should get together again sometime. <laughs> and right then, the girls look at me and go, now wait a minute, that's... That doesn't fit. I said, really? Well, what about if three years later he calls you and says, hey, we've been married for three years. I think it's time we have children. And your reply will be, who are you? Why do we expect anything different from the Lord in the relationship that we've been brought in with him through Jesus Christ by faith? Why do we believe that it will be easy for us to recognize Him a year from now, a month from now, a week from now, if we haven't learned to be with Him now? They are simply going about the next thing. A number of years ago, 
I was at a driving range in Kerrville with our camp director at that time. After hitting the balls, we were going back to the car, and I told him, listen, I, I want to stop at the shop here and just talk with the owner. Just, just real quick, just say hi to him. Matt was the name of our, our camp director, and he said, sure, let's do that. So I just opened the door. I had been building a relationship with Brian, is his name. I just opened the door. Brian was standing at the other side of the, of the pro shop, and I just yelled across the building, hey, Brian, just wanted to say hello, and I'm about to close the door, and he says, wait, Kelly, come here. So we walked inside, walked across the building. We're standing there with him, and he says, I've got a question for you. Okay. Your students have been coming here and hitting balls at the driving range. And right away I thought, uh-oh. What have they done? And he said, after they're done, what they do, all of them, they pick up their baskets. He said, Kelly, nobody does that. Nobody cleans up. Then they come back to the pro shop and they stack their baskets outside the door. They open the door and yell in, thank you, sir, and then walk off. And I thought, oh. And he said, here's my question. What are you doing with those kids? And Matt and I looked at each other, and we thought, is it this easy? <laughs> and so we went ahead and explained to him just what we're doing with these students. We're walking through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We're trying to show them that Christ is more than your ticket to heaven, that Christ is your life. And every, if you've placed your faith in Him, you have the, the privilege of living with all the confidence that is God as He indwells you in any situation. I couldn't wait to get back to his hill and to teach the next class so I could tell them this story and encourage them with this. Guys, even when hitting golf balls, do the next thing. Now, Charlie took us through Acts a couple of years ago. But 25 years ago, he was preaching through this passage and when he got to this passage, he wrote something. Or I, I saw, noticed that Arlene wrote something down in her Bible. And that got my attention. So I leaned over and looked to see what she was writing. It was found in verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. What did she write down? She wrote this statement. Know what you have in Christ. And I thought to myself, there's the sermon right there. Do I know what I have in Christ? Do you know I didn't, I'm not asking, do you know all the answers? Do you, do, you know, have you studied? I'm asking you, do you know? Do you experientially know? This is an experience. He knows what he has. 
Do you know what you have in Christ? Because if you've placed your faith in Christ, you have Christ. Who, according to the verse that we just looked at, is the head of all rule and authority. You have been made complete. Do you know what is yours? I was, uh, when we were in Louisiana, I was helping Arlene clean the house. So this was a monumental moment. And while I'm going through my nightstand, opening the top drawer and just going through, it's amazing what I just shove in there. And I start going through it one item at a time and I find an envelope. Hmm, what is this? There's nothing written on it. So I open the envelope up and there's cash in there. So I dig around a little bit. Oh, this was a birthday present from my mother-in-law. Okay, so I put that down. And I keep going through the drawer and I come across another envelope. And I open it up. Another birthday present from my mother-in-law. That's two years back of presents. I keep digging and I pull out money from my mom and dad. And I keep digging and I pull out money. Now this was from an honorarium from four years ago. Oh, I put that down. Don't want Arlene to see this. I keep digging and I keep digging through the drawer and I keep stacking money up on the bed. When I was finished going through the drawer, I had enough cash to buy my iPad. <laughs> now, let me point out something. Just because I had forgotten that I had the money did not mean that I didn't have the money. But it did mean it was of absolute no benefit to me. Because I had received it thankfully, tucked it away securely, and forgot about it. Probably during that time I had it, I had prayed about whether or not, Lord, could I have an iPad? I wonder how many times we pray, Lord, will you meet the need? Will you answer the question? And I can just envision him saying, I have. Do you know what you have in Christ? Do you know that you've been made complete? Now listen, this is not for you to use. Don't misunderstand me. You know, some Christians go around acting like what God gives us is mine and I can do what I want with it. I can claim anything. But Galatians 2.20 says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith. And the one who loved me and delivered himself up for me. All that we have been given is for us to know, not for us to use, not for us to control, because it's his life, not mine, not yours. Peter knew this. In verse 7, an interesting word there, but Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk, verse 7, and seizing him by the right hand. Interesting word. Just jumped out to me. 
few weeks ago when studying this passage. To seize him, it means to take hold of firmly and with considerable measure of force. There is great confidence that Peter is displaying here. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has been working in Peter, preparing him for this moment, and there is no hesitation. There is great confidence. He grabs hold of him and lifts him up. This is a big deal because this man has been lame, and we know from the next chapter, over 40 years. From his mother's womb, his legs, his ankles are nothing but dangling, useless appendages and have been since the moment of his birth. And Peter has the audacity to say, get up. Clearly, this is the Holy Spirit at work in Peter for this very moment. And what is the result of this? Of going about the next thing, knowing what he has in Christ. Well, in verse 8, the lame man walks. And he enters the temple. This is a big deal. Because of the physical shape he's been in, he has not been allowed to enter into the temple. He is not whole. He is blemished physically. He's never been allowed to go any further than the steps of the temple to beg from others. But now, because Peter knows what he has, this man's life is changed. He walks for the first time in his life, and for the first time in his life, he walks into the temple, leaping, praising God. In verses 12 to 20, because he knows what he has in Christ, he gets to preach to the multitude. Look at the sermon there in verse 12. We won't read all of it. We'll just go to verse 20. But when Peter saw this, saw everybody hanging on, being amazed at him, he replied, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power and piety we had made him walk? This is normal to Peter. Why are you amazed? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned, what a verse, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What a verse, what a convicting verse. Because I can identify with that. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, 
But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Because he knows what he has in Christ, the lame man walks. Because he knows what he has in Christ, he is given the opportunity to preach to the multitude. Now, look, I don't think that he and John got up that morning and said, incredible things have been going on. You know, it was just a few weeks ago that we walked into this city with Jesus, the triumphal entry, everybody welcoming him, palm branches laid down, cloaks laid down, everybody praising and so excited, and then... By the end of the week, they're hanging him on a cross, yelling, crucify him. Then just three days later, we saw him. We walked with him. We talked with him. We touched him. We ate with him. We walked with him out into the countryside, and we watched him ascend into heaven. We saw the angels tell us he's coming back. We went back to the upper room, and we waited because he told us to wait. So we just waited and we prayed. Then there was that day, remember John, the day when we heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind? We looked out the window, but there was no wind. And the next thing you know, we were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We began to speak in tongues. And John said, yeah, remember the first first sermon you preached? Just a few days ago? Yeah. Wow, the Lord really used you for that. It was so clear. 3,000 men, we don't even know how many women and children there were, but 3,000 men came to faith in Christ on that day. Peter says to John, yeah, and you know, it's been amazing too how every day people keep coming to hear the teaching and we keep sitting down and we keep communing with one another. We keep sharing meals. And people daily, and it says In the previous chapter, it says that daily the Lord is adding to our number. And John didn't look at Peter that morning and say, what should we do today? And Peter said, I've got an idea. Why don't we go to the temple? There's always lame people. There's always people who need healing there. And then, uh, you know, John, we we could pray for him. And the Lord will heal him because we're filled. We know what he does with us. And that will probably give us an opportunity to preach. And then pretty soon, you know, the religious elders that had just, had just killed Jesus, you know, they're there and they're probably going to want to talk to us. And we'll get to talk to them too. It'll be a great work. Yeah, Peter, good idea. Let's pray. But so often that's how we do it, isn't it? This will be a great thing that we can do. Now let's pray. God, fulfill our will. Do it my way. No, they got up that morning. They went about their, their, their activities that day, and then it was 3 o'clock. Whoop, got to go pray. And there's a layman. And pretty soon that layman walks because Peter knows what he's been given in Christ. People gather around, and he preaches. In chapter 4 and verse 4 it says this, But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 
So we know for sure at this point there's 8,000, but we know there's more than that because another verse in chapter 2 says that the, number, the Lord was adding daily to that number. It says here in verse 4 that they believed. What does that mean, they believed? Well, in John 3.16, the same word appears. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, will not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Well, the word believe there, it's much more than just an acceptance of facts. And so often, that's what we have watered it down to. Do you believe the facts? Then you're saved. That's not what this means. But here where it says they believed, and in John 3.16 where it says whoever believes, that word believe means this. Whoever will entrust their life to me. This is not mine to do with as I wish. This is yours. Have your way. Amazing what's going on here. It's 5,000 men, no idea how many women and children, believe. Do you believe? Or have you just accepted a bunch of facts? Because he knows what he has in Christ, the lame man walks. 5,000 are saved. There in chapter 4 and verse 3, we see they are arrested. They know what they have, and we always think, oh, I know what I have. It's going to be great. Now that I have, now, it's, now that it's me and Jesus, smooth sailing. <laughs> but Jesus' own brother in his epistle said this, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. James chapter 1, verse 2. Not if, but when. They're arrested. In verse 3 there, chapter 4, they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Why would he do that? Why would the Lord do this? Well, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders. Because he knows what he has in Christ, the lame man walks. He gets to preach to the multitude. They're arrested, but because he knows what he has in Christ, he gets to now, now envision this, see it for what it is. These men are standing in front of the very people that just murdered Jesus. And he gets to preach to them. In verse 7 of chapter 4, it says, When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you all, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. What an incredible thing that's happening here. And for Peter, it's just the next thing. Why? He asks them, why are you amazed? The miraculous should be the normal for the one who believes in Jesus. For the one who has been made complete in Christ. All of God found in Christ, all of Christ found in you. Not for you to use, but for you to know. The miraculous should be the normal for the believer. Why are we amazed? All because he knew what he had in Christ. And then we see this. Because he knew what he had in Christ, God is glorified. Look at the verses in chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, With a leap he stood upright and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The next verse, all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then we go to chapter 4. The religious leadership is together trying to decide what they're going to do with these two men. In verse 21 it says this, when they had gathered them uh, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Because Peter knows what he has in Christ, He has been made complete. He can go about the next thing. Whatever it is, he can go about it. And God be glorified. Whatever we're to go about the next thing, whatever's next for you after this service is over with, it is for the purpose of God being glorified. As he lives his very life through the believer, How could it not bring glory to him if he's the one that's doing it? The only way God can be glorified is if he's doing it. Jesus tells us in John 15 and verse 5, he says that if you abide in me as I in you, you will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But...
Later on, Paul tells us this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In Philippians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 1, he says, I strive and I labor according to his power, which mightily works through me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but in me, you can do the next thing. What specifically was he preaching? Well, he preached Christ, but what does that mean? Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. It says this. In that sermon, he preaches to the multitude. He says, but put to death, you put to death the prince of life. So what does he preach about Christ? He preaches that Christ has died. He goes on and explains, you put him to death. You all know what I'm talking about. You were there. Crucify him, crucify him. You were there as he hung on the cross, and you were there as he said, it is finished. So he preached Christ put to death. But look at the rest of that verse. Verse 15, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. He preached Christ put to death, but he preached Christ raised from death. In chapter 4, in verse 2, this is the problem. They're arrested, and in verse 2 we find out why. They were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And then again in chapter 4 and verse 10. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Christ who died is alive. This is what they're upset about. The enemy of, of the Lord does not care about us talking about Jesus dying for us. You know that? I can't find a verse that says that the enemy of the Lord is upset about Jesus dying. But don't you dare say that he's alive, that he came back from the grave, because this would make him Lord. What do I mean? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll start in verse 13, and I'll show you a few more verses, and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, it says this, But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been, has been raised. In verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. This is what these believers were witnesses of. And because of time, I wanted us to walk through Acts and look at some verses, but I'll just give you the references. Because in every one of these references, this is what we find. That the believers in Acts were witnesses of Christ's death 
and resurrection, you cannot find a message, one sermon in the book of Acts that does not talk both of the death and resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel. Both death and resurrection of Christ. And also in the book of Acts. Well, here, I'll give you those references. First of all, the, of the, the, ministry, of the witnessing of death and resurrection. Acts 1, 22. Chapter 2, 32. Chapter 3, 15. Chapter 5, 30 to 32. If you need them, I'll give them to you later. But then also we find that this is consistent with what people get upset about. That they're talking about Jesus being raised from the grave. Acts 17, 18. And 32, chapter 23, 6, chapter 26, 8. All of these are references where people are mad and they're upset that you're talking about Jesus being raised from the grave. They didn't care what, about Jesus dying. But when they say that Jesus is alive, then things get going. Are we guilty of the same thing? And, and you know, we can give the Roman Catholics a hard time because they leave Jesus on the cross with a crucifix. They talk a lot about suffering with Jesus. But what about us? What about the conservative evangelical? The ones that all we do is talk about Jesus dying for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you to take your sin away. (laughs) And if you just believe in him because he died for you, then you'll be saved. But what about what we just celebrated? Do you know why we celebrate this? Because Jesus told us to. And he said what? He says, I will not take it again with you until I return. A dead man cannot return. And then he will take it with us again. And a dead man can't eat and can't drink. Romans 5 says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, that doesn't mean that what he's about to say is more important than what he has said. Much more, there's more to this than just the death. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Peter knows what he has. He has a living Savior. And because of this, he can go about the next thing. Watchman Nee once said this, Our our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. Tim Keller, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. John MacArthur, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of the gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside 
all other human philosophy and religious speculation. But the favorite quote I have comes from a four-year-old girl. The story was told to me by one of our students who was a volunteer in the Bible study that this four-year-old girl was in. And the student told me that as the teacher was talking and repeating that Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, she said she noticed that this little four-year-old kept squirming, wouldn't be still. And after a while, she could tell that this little girl was just about to explode. And as the teacher kept saying, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, the little girl couldn't take it anymore. And this four-year-old stood up and said, He's alive! Jesus got up out of the grave. He raised. He's alive. Do you know that? As you go about the next thing, do you know this? That the one that you have placed your faith in is alive. And I want you to understand something that something has just stood out to me with this man getting up again. This didn't happen just because Peter decided, I know what I've got, now get up. It didn't happen because the Lord said, just grabbed him and threw him and said, you're up, walk. But what happened here? In chapter 3, in verse 16, Peter's explaining it. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. We don't have every little detail of this story, but we have enough to know that when Peter approaches him and says, in the name of Jesus, which means by the power of Jesus, get up, this man puts his faith in Jesus. And his life was changed. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6. All of this is literally Christ's life. In chapter 2, we see that they were filled with Jesus. In chapter 2, in Peter's preaching, he says this, everything that you see here is him. This is the life of Christ. And these men know it. So they do the next thing. I was listening to Major Thomas one time preach at his hill. Sitting at the, in the chapel, and as he was coming to the end of the meetings that week, in the last session, 
right at the end, giving us this application, I was just convicted that this life of Christ is mine and I need to live this life. And so I started to pray. Just ask the Lord right there as Major was finishing the sermon. And I said, Father, I want to live the same life. I was looking at this man and I was hearing him with such confidence and boldness and I said, I want to live the same life. And you know what the Lord just worked in my heart right there in a split second? He said, then do it. There is no more of me in Major Thomas than there is in you. Now get up and by faith do the next thing. I want to finish with this poem. It was making its way around the internet a few years ago, and finally I think it stopped so I can use it again. And it's simply entitled, Do the Next Thing. We don't know who the author is, but it goes like this. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quiet Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, as it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And on through the hours the quiet words ring, like a low inspiration, do the next thing. Many a quietening, many a fear, many a doubt, hath its quietening here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all resultings, do the next thing. Looking to Jesus ever serener, working our suffering be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not saved us for us to do our best, but you've saved us to live the life that you created us for, your very life. And Father, we thank you that this is the demand, but then we also find that you have gone and lived the very demand. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom this morning to get up and do the next thing with confidence in all that you are, shown in Christ that you, Father, be glorified. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.